I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. The last few months, the word activewear has come up on this podcast quite a bit. And it seems to me that there are so many people innovating in this space that it's worth coming back to. And that's what we're going to do today. This week, I'm joined by Virianne and Katia Santilli. Now, they're the co-founders of a company called Nimble. It's obviously an activewear company. The point of difference for these two guys is that they have developed a signature fabric that's made out of recycled plastic bottles to try and eliminate waste. That's the primary purpose. The secondary outcome is it ends up in the activewear. So that's a big point of difference. These two have been friends since they were teenagers. Yep, 14 years of age. Now they work together. In fact, they even live together. And I'm actually keen to find out how they made their friendship back in when they were 14 years of age, how they developed their friendship, how they developed their separate professional lives, and how they came together again in the mid-20s. So let's get into it. Virianne and Katia Santilli, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having us. So, like, it's, it's funny, you know, like the two names, uh, Vera and Katia. Um, I know you just sound silly, but it's like a couple of sisters. Well, I think we've known each other since we were 14 and I'm an only child. And, you know, I've said time, like, I think, and Katia doesn't have any sisters. We're probably two the brothers, closest so. to brothers. But, um, you know, I think that to each other, we're the closest to sisters that you get. And, you know, yes, it just so happens that both our names seem to be, you know, Russian, or as I recently just found out, my name is not Russian, it's Latin. But, um, yeah, it's like a, it's like fate. But you sort of, the two names, uh, Vera and Kati, they, they, I don't know, they sort of sing. They, they, the two words go together, for, in, just in my mind. And just watching you earlier on, the level of comfort you have with each other and... Uh, I know you just like bounce off each other a little bit. I mean, so you've known each other since you're 14. You go to school together? Correct. So we went to high school together. Um, I moved across to the school and that's Vera and I were in the same year eight class. And, um, you know, we got to know each other, I guess, in the first few weeks of school starting and we've been kind of inseparable since. And we've always been known as Vera and Cartier. We've we come I mean. as the duo. Yeah. That's what yeah. I mean. When people, when, when people talk yeah. about you, they probably say, oh, Vera and Cartier. Like, yeah. uh, like you're, like you're, a, you're, a, you're a team. Like you're, like you're together. Yeah. You're one. You're yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. So, what's where, like? I know you got a shop in Bondi. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. So, you, you, East Suburbs girls. Or where did you go to school so together? We actually went to school in Melbourne. Um. So we both grew up in Melbourne in very similar suburbs. Um. In southeastern suburbs around Kew and Hawthorne. Went to school around there. Um. And yeah, we have always remained best friends and but um it was after school where we went on quite different career paths and I actually went over um to London um after I did a short stint um working for Puma in Melbourne and then Vera moved up to Sydney to pursue her career um however we remained great friends and it wasn't until we moved back to well I moved back to Sydney that we um started I guess the business and um the concept of Nimble. So, okay, take me back to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. 14 years of age, year eight. Yeah. You get to meet each other, you're hanging out. Um, did you ever sort of uh, sort of play, you know, pretend things that you were doing something together, like in business? Did you ever sort of go and sell lemon no, juices or something? No, sure. did we think we would end up in business together? We were, we do have quite different skill sets and wanted to pursue very different careers as well. We would, 
you know, you never I think thought we'd cross paths. Well, one of you're you like know? really smart at school, or you both Vera. the same. I was, I was Vera. real, I was really bookish. You know, I was the kid that in, you know, when I met Cardia, I became infinitely cooler if I tracked back in my life. You know, I was in orchestra and I played the piano and I played the French horn and I went to Chinese school and I just, you know, it was like maths homework. And you know, I met Cardia and she'd come from a different school and she was. You know, I'd never met anyone that was like, you know, this is what I want to do. I love fashion and I love being creative. Because you're saying this or this is what Cardi was saying? No, I'm saying this about Cardi and, yep. you know, I know who I am. And, you know, when you're a 14-year-old girl and you've got braces and you've got pimples and, you know, like you're so awkward. And, and I, you've got a great big uh, instrument that you're carrying around. Great, yeah. great big French horn on the tram to hey, Melbourne. I accepted the French <laughs> <Yeah>. horn. <laughs> and, you know, then, then you meet... Like we were very different, but there was something about us that was really drawn to each other. Were you sort of like attracted to her type of lifestyle, given that your lifestyle was probably, sound by the sound of it, was pretty disciplined. You know, you were study, you know, you're learning Chinese, I guess, as well, just to speak Chinese, write Chinese, and also at the same time uh, into your music, which, you know, that's not just into music. It's a fair, fair amount of commitment. You've got extra practice you've got to do, blah, blah, blah. Um, were you attracted to what she was offering and were you equally no, uh, cardio attracted to what she was offering? I don't think we thought it. It was like, this is, this, this girl will be my friend. She's not mean to me. We have fun together. <laughs> I think, yeah, there was a level of fun as well yeah. between us because why some of our passions were different. We had a lot of similarities as well. Um, and you know, I guess what we wanted to do in our spare time and we could just, you know, I remember Vera and I would be in the same class at school and we would spend the whole day together and yet would get home and then chat on the phone for two hours. And our parents would be like, get off the phone and go do some homework. <laughs> it's like, why do you need to chat for two hours after you spent the whole day together? But that's yeah. the kind of relationship we had. Well, that's a, that's a, a fairly um, important embedded relationship that you have going right back to the time of 14 because then those sort of things hold true and strong during business times because you're going to get tough times in business and you need to be able to rely on the other person. Mm -hmm. So from the, I guess from the point of view of reliability and f that comes with familiarity, trust comes with familiarity and you probably know each other, as you said earlier, like sisters, you know everything about each other to a large extent anyway. Mm -hmm. At least everything that happened from the age of 14 on, yeah. you, you guys have been confidants to each other mm -hmm. and um, sure. watch each other grow up. So because that's an important point when it comes to doing business. Um, if you're going to do business with somebody, I always like to be in business with somebody else. And if you're going to be in business with somebody else, it's got to be somebody you trust. Mm -hmm. And trust is built on familiarity. Yeah. We trust our family the most, yeah. the word family, because we're familiar with what they do. They might not be perfect, but we know their responses mm. and you know each other's responses. So that's, mm. that's a really good basis to be in business together. Yeah. Just drag me through, you know, you did your HSC. Um, what were the two decisions that you both made post HSC? So what did you decide to do, Vera, after the HSC? I went and did commerce law at Melbourne Uni. Right. And and you decided or someone decided for you that you should become a lawyer or? No, not no. at all. Like I'm actually really lucky. My parents, like, I mean, we're first generation. Like I'm a first. You're I, the first yeah, generation. I moved here in 1991. Um, and... I think looking around that community, you know, it is a great community, the Chinese community. And um, I've been so lucky because my parents have not forced me at all. It was not their sort of decision to say, hey, you need to go into law. They were sort of like, hey, you go and do something and you work hard. And, you know, there was no, you do one particular thing. Um, and I did law because one of our girlfriends, I did work experience with her dad once. And, you know, I had no idea what to do. Um, I just knew I had good marks. And I was like, okay, well, I get good marks. I'm I'm good at a lot of stuff. I don't have any passions, really. What does one do? Because well, it sounds very formulaic, if you don't mind me saying so, because it's very reminiscent of my um, generation. You know, kids come from migrant families, um, which is, a, I'm a first generation too. Mm. And um, you did, you worked hard to do well at school because you had to do better than your parents. And then you either went and did commerce or you did medicine or you did engineering or something mm. like that, which is what everyone in my family did too. Um, and it's mainly because we didn't have any ambitions other than to do well, mm. uh, better than our parents. So it does sound a little bit formulaic because, you know, you're the, the Asian kid, first generation, mm. you're musical, you do music, mm. um, you do well at school, you don't do, go to a commerce law degree, a professional degree. 
but anyway, I mean, it is what it is. It doesn't mm. matter. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's actually a good basis. I mean, every everyone great I know, basis. a great basis. Yeah. But that's what you decided to do. Did you ever practice as a lawyer? Yes, yeah. I did. You worked in law firm down in Melbourne? Um, no. So I um, I finished uni. Um, while I was at uni, I did an internship in finance up here. Right. Um, and so I moved up here. That's what brought me to Sydney. So right. I worked in um, finance for two years. Um, what, did you work for an accounting firm or did you work for uh, a in, bank? or Investment banking at right. Macquarie. Macquarie. Oh, you were at Macquarie, okay. Yeah. Well, you must have done well then at, at uni because Macquarie tastes the best <laughs> graduates. Um, so, and, then, and again, that's formulaic too. Yeah, it is. Because, you know, the com- commerce Absolutely. law kid does well, blah, blah. And, like, you know, a lot of times they're Asian and today Absolutely. they're Russian and various other nationalities, but they do well. And then Macquarie goes and plucks them out of um, wherever they are. And sticks them into the machine, mm. and um, and it's always it's always good training to go to Macquarie. You don't get paid much, and you work bloody hard. You but work your butt off. Totally, um, but um, it's good training. It's good on your CV. I want to stop you there then. Sure. So, Cardia, mm-hmm. year twelve. Yep. What did you do? So, um, I have always had this passion for fashion and direction of I want to work in the industry. So, um, you know, in year 12, I thought fashion design was the only way in and you don't realise how many more opportunities there are in the industry. So I missed out on um, a course at RMIT um, to get into design and I was completely heartbroken. Um, However, RMIT, just remind me what that is. um, It's a university in Melbourne. Yeah, but does it specialise in fashion? It it does. It's quite good with, I guess, a lot of that artsy side. Um, So um, unfortunately, I missed out. However, um, options were open to me um, at RMIT to do more of a business fashion degree, which I got into and I absolutely loved. And from that, I fell into a role in Melbourne with Puma, working for the Australian subsidiary. during the same time as you're studying or after? Um, just after. So they approached my course for a maternity cover and a few of us applied and I ended up getting the position. And so it was only for a six-month position, but then it went to a full-time position. And um, I always wanted to go, I guess, overseas to Europe and pursue high-end fashion. So I ended up moving to London. With Puma? Uh, No, I quit my job at Puma. Um, I moved over after spending two and a half years at Puma and I got a job at Burberry, which I absolutely loved. I was in my dream. Burberry, the fashion label. Yes, the fashion label. It's sort of very English, isn't it? Yes. Quintessential heritage. Yes, it is. It's very heritage. Um. So I I was in my dream job there, doing what I wanted to do, and um, I was working my way up. What there. were you doing there? What skill did you um, uh, gain so, there? So uh, a merchandise manager, right? Um, which, which means what? Like a product manager, yeah. In a way, what it means, but just give it to me as mm-hmm. a description. It means getting your product on people's shelves or getting a product out there that buyers want. What's it mean, merchandising? Um, it means, um, I guess you work, you, you see the product from end to end. So you work really closely with like the design and sourcing team um, and the factories and then working with the retail and wholesale team to get it to the consumer. Um, you know, it's a lot of, um, you know, are your margins hitting targets? What what are we going to be retailing it at? What's going to make the collection? So it's the minutiae of the product. Yeah. In other words, how, how does this work for us? How do we make money out of it? How do we make Correct. sure people buy it? What do they want to buy? How do I get it on the racks? Who's yeah. who's making it? How do we stay yeah. do we have faithful to, to yeah. our, our brand, et cetera? Those are- Correct. Like, do, do we have enough, like, pants and the assortment versus jackets and that kind of thing? Is it balanced? Like, you know, do we need to brief design in with any other, like, concepts, that kind of thing? How so, old were you? Um, I was uh, around 25 at this stage, 25, 26. We were young because I think I was yeah. still at uni were when you, you started at Burberry. No, and you weren't Macquarie. You were still – because I only did a three-year degree. Yeah. Yeah. So yours a five-year degree? Six. Six oh, years. and I did Chinese. Yeah. Right, okay. There's more to add to the formula. <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's going to be helpful yeah. in the future too. It's Mandarin, I presume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mandarin. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it's going to be helpful for the future. So both of you are 25, 26 mm. around the territory. Yeah. Mm. Um, you've got your qualifications in um, business and fashion. Yeah. You've got your skill base in merchandising mm-hmm. and, and also exposure to some big fashion labels. Uh, um, that's Cartier. Then let's go back to Vera. You've got your commerce law degree and a bit of Chinese 
on on the side there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've got your experience at Macquarie. What were you doing at Macquarie, by the way? Which part uh, of Macquarie are you working in? The investment banking division. Was that CAF um, or what? MacCap. Macquarie Capital. Macquarie Capital, okay. And then in the real estate team within that. And then you went into the real estate department. Okay, so you, you've got, you've um, uh, ground your teeth on uh, that sort of really tough Macquarie environment where, you know, they they do work on minutiae, but not in fashion, but they make sure that you, there's very few mistakes get made there and there's a big machine. And you got to work long hours. And uh, so you two come together at that point, like 26, 27. Is that what happened? Yeah. So how You're was... in Sydney. You're in Sydney. Very so, and I'm, I'm in London. So I... You're texting um, each other? Or... Yeah, oh, we call. We call. Because Cardi was working really long hours too. So we would catch each other at the end of each other's days. And I would often call Cardi a crying because I was, you know, so stressed and overworked. And then mm. Cardi would tell me about this fashion show she'd gone and to. Get and you get jealous. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was. I was in awe and she'd be like, you know, Hermione from Harry Potter had just been in the building and I was <laughs> But could I ask you, how did you yeah. keep in contact? Like what, what um platforms did you use to keep in contact? Back then it was not WhatsApp, it was text message and calling. Yeah, and calling. I would I would walk to work and I think that's when I would call Vera. Yeah. That's so you I, kept the friendship. An email. Yep. What an email! A lot of email at work. So you, you're getting a little bit of jealous yeah. of a little bit jealous of what Cardi was doing. I don't think we've ever been jealous of. No, we're not jealous. Yeah, I'm going, oh shit! Oh, I want to see uh, you know these Harry Potter people coming into the. Yeah. Would you have liked to have seen that? I mean, yes, absolutely. But like, I mean, don't get me wrong; it was long hours. But you know, I'd moved to Sydney, and you know, as with Macquarie, I think you know, there's twelve of us grads, and we're all from interstate, and we're all having a great old time in Sydney. So you know, like, I'm still having fun. But Friday I guess, night drinks. Yeah, it was great. The Ivy, and you know, all of those establishments down there, it was fantastic. But you know, it was, it was a different sort of work life, I guess. You mm. know, I guess some some part of me was like, wow, you know, like. My best friend has found like her dream and her passion. You Did know? you feel as though you had your dream? No, absolutely not. Yeah, you that's know? what I mean. I don't mean jealousy, but you're, you, you've recognised something in, in in what Cardi was doing. I um, mean, did you? What did you think about what Vera was doing? Um, you thought she's going to make bet. a shitload of money one day because she's going to be the boss <laughs> of my quarries. No, but yes, but I could hear. I guess not necessarily the pain, but you know, you really found. You, you, there was no enjoyment in what she was doing, I don't think, for her. And, you know, when someone doesn't have their passion, I guess as being someone that I don't know, I've kind of always, you know, I saw what I wanted to go into. It was, I guess, in a way hard to see Vera in something she wasn't quite enjoying or you didn't think she would have longevity in. So whose idea was it to get together? It was actually Vera's. So yeah. what did you do? Tell me what happened. No, I, did, I didn't drag her out of her dream <laughs> no, job. No, it was when I was back yeah. in Sydney. So I had to come back to Australia to finalise my European passport. And I had to spend a few months in Australia. And I'm like, I'm not, I saw a bit of family in Melbourne. And then I'm like, I'm coming up to Sydney, Vera. I'm moving in with you. Let's have a great time while I'm here for a few months. And it was in that time where... Business the business started. evolved. The idea was hatched. Yeah, the yeah. idea was hatched. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how the idea got hatched. So I, I really want to know, like, yeah. what were we sort of, you know, watching telly one night and you said, no, let's do this? Or did I you sit under a plan? It was in the yoga studio. I think it was at the time, going back five years ago, the activewear space is was really dominated. Because I want to know that. Because, by yeah. the way, I've done a lot of activewear people here, like yeah. Lorna James. Mm. Why mm-hmm. activewear? Like, like, it's like being done. I mean, yeah. like, tell me why. Why what, would you thought so you could do it better? at the time for us, like, it was very dominated. Well, there was a lot of Lululemon in the market and they have fabulous products and they perform really well. And then Except you had... see-through. Yes, exactly. They had the massive <laughs> see-through issue. And then you had, um, you know, Nike and Addy and they were very kind of masculine. They're very, like, tech and traditional active wear. They have, like, this terminology. It's like pink it and shrink it. Take the men's wear product version, add some pink onto it, shrink it to women's wear. So there there was this missing piece of, um, you know, this fashion aesthetic in active wear that still actually performed. And, you know, we would wear, like, you know, what we are, our competitors now and Lululemon and we were, you know, they had great products but they were missing this fashion aesthetic to them. So we thought... There has to be a way of fusing both 
pieces together. So just explain to me because like I mean I've I should know more about this, but I'm. I know the brands. I know that I know. Mm. I've heard of Lulu Le Mans, and I've heard of um, you know, Lawn Jones, etc. But mm. and you guys too, for that matter. Um, but just explain to me exactly what you mean by active wear, and and for all the male listeners who mm-hmm. need to be educated on this stuff, mm. what do you mean by active wear? And then tell me what you mean by the aesthetic mm-hmm. around active wear. So active wear products you can be active in something that you pull on, you go to the gym, you do your yoga class, right. and it. You know, so we're talking about the tights. Yeah, and, the tights, the sports bras. It offers function. So, so it, it, and it, but can I just go one step further? But mm-hmm. is it is it like uh, uh, the physics of sports? Like, does active wear mean proper compression clothes that we're talking about here, or just something less than compression, something less scientific? Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be compression or mean compression, but it needs to have a functional element to it. So it needs to be functional. But there's a lot of brands now entering the market because it's, you know, there's been this rising. Boom in the space and active wear, what is actually active wear or sports wear is kind of shifting. And I think that's probably Mm. where people get confused. You know, for us and what we make, I think it's really fundamental that it performs and it functions as intended and that means that you can get sweaty in it it's got you know um, technology in it that you know moves with you it doesn't chafe it um, you know doesn't irritate and if you're in yoga it doesn't dig into you you know like little design things like that you know I think that's what for us defines. so there is there is technicality associated but it's not it's not about um it's not about the science of compressing the capillaries in the blood vessels and the skin such no. that the blood goes deeper into the muscle. No. It's more about and functionality, as you say. So it, it works. It performs to what you say it's going to do. If you make active wear for studio yoga classes, it performs for that type of exercise. However, there are compression brands out there where you need to compress the muscle for yeah. you know, running and that performs to what it says it's going to yeah, do. Yeah, like sportsmen. Like, uh, Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, that fabric might have a different function for that, yeah, Now that I've activity. laid the aesthetics for me, will you? Can you yeah. just give me the aesthetics of it? Like, it's visual. You're trying to make it look pretty or yeah, it's pretty much. nice? It's, it's visual. Like, a, you know, women want to look good, whether they're working out or then wearing it to go to brunch or do the shopping. They want to look good in what they're wearing. It, and are we talking about, it like, when they feel good. It, it feel good, yeah. But it's like f- actual feeling, or like the feeling on your body, or you think you you look visual. good. You, visual. I think it's all of it. Yeah. You know, you want it. You want it to feel good, so you don't have a big muffin top, and you're not conscious of you know all of it. Muffin tops, the, the bit that yeah, comes yeah, yeah. over. Yeah. Um. You you want to feel good, but you also I think you know. Everyone sees every, especially in Australia, you know, people are in their active wear, not just confined to the gym. So there's like a blurring between, you know, what is fashion and what is function. And more and more so women don't just want the black and as Cardia said, the pink and trinket. They want, you know, what's on trend and happening in the broader world of fashion to come through their active wear as well and to update their prints. I think that like that's something that. So the fashion is an interesting thing. Um, like, you know, the classic active wear, I guess, is a pair of black tights. The black mm. for females. I guess guys wear them too. Mm. Um, that's the classic look. But fashion is um, ever-changing. Mm. Um, and who's the one between the two of you, who, or is it both of you, who's who's looking out ahead? Who's doing the, the uh, predicting where the market's going to go? Because, I mean, I know, what's Jodie Mears, Jodie Packer's um, brand? Upside. Upside. So, I mean, I know that she brought in some sort of new look in terms of, you know, tights and mm. all that sort of stuff. You're, you've got to be on the cutting edge of what looks new and not mm. just a dot. Or do you just say, look, I, we saw that in um, recently and we can have a variation of that. Or do you try and get ahead of that? No, I think we definitely try and look ahead. And, um, you know, and it could be from print trends, colour trends, um, block shape trends, but we're definitely, um, you know, trying to look ahead and looking ahead sometimes is looking at what like high end is doing. Of course, you're not going to wear like a ball gown in active wear, but you can pick up looks and colors and prints and detailing from that top tier and then relate it back to, 
your collection or what you're designing for. Okay, because I want to yeah. come back to this stuff. I want to dig into the business a little bit. Mm-hmm. So we've got to go to a break, talk to our sponsors, and then when we come back for the break, I want to talk to you about so your decision-making. I want to know between the two of you who does what in the business, um, what your aspirations are, and um, and how you're dealing with the competition, like, and how are you going well and what you want to do from here. Okay, we're back from the break, and I'm talking to Vera and Cardi about activewear, and I, I'm actually trying to uh, sort of dive in a bit deep as to the marketplace, and the only sort of proxy I can come up against is uh, denim. Now, denim became a big thing, um, and therefore, and there were hundreds, probably thousands of brands and styles and fashions around denim, and denim still does well. So... Is, is denim a good proxy for you guys in terms of active wear? I think it's a proxy in terms of, you know, people wear denim casually and, you know, like that's been replaced by, you know, active wear. But I think beyond that also there, there are differences, you know, active wear as a piece of clothing is so closely linked to this, like, this global movement at the moment, you know, everyone, and, you know, everyone is so into health and wellness and well-being and how can we live better? How can we better ourselves? How can we get, feel better? So I think like there is definitely, I think, a cor- and there has been a correlation between sales, but I think as categories, there are differences in sort of what they stand for and what they're linked to. Yeah, I think it's this lifestyle element. Back when you used to go to brunch or to the shops, you often put on your pair of jeans and T-shirt. Now everyone seems to be in their active wear. It offers this level of comfort and it's the trend that's happening at the moment is it still well. happening? Is it happening? I know it's happening in Australia, yeah. but is it is it global? Is it a global phenomenon? Like is it happening in, in Moscow or is it happening in uh, Shanghai? Well, so, I mean, look, it's definitely we're finding, you know, we're working with more international partners. You know, I think in New Zealand it's happening. In the UK it's sort of happening. They're sort of, is it? Yeah, they're sort of where Australia was, you know, four years ago kind of. You know, people are starting to wear it out of the gym and that trend is going to only increase more and more as influencers and, you know, people in the public eye and more and more people do it. Um, Shanghai, so I was actually, you know, we, we've been looking into the China market and I was just there for for a holiday. But, you know, it's interesting there, no. Um, you know, in Shanghai, the expats, yes. And, you know, every now and then you see a local, but, you know, it's mostly still confined to the gym. So, so yeah. It's very cultural. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it is an Australian, it, it's like, is it something that sort of started here? Or do we adopt it out of the US? I mean, where do we get it from? Who Maybe can- LA? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like could be right. Yeah, yeah. It sounds logical. I yeah. wouldn't have a clue, but it sounds yeah. logical to me. Mm-hmm. So, but it's probably uh, you don't really see it in New York now much. Now with but. the choice of brands as well, like there's a lot more players on the market, so it gives people choice. Going back to, I guess, denim, there were a lot of competitors and brands, and you could, you know, buy denim from fast fashion, and you could buy it from more high-end labels. It's like with activewear now as well. There's so much choice on the market. It's quite accessible for everyone. So, okay, what is, do you know, can you tell me, have, have you got an idea what your addressable market is, given that the market is clearly starting to be adopted in places like the UK, maybe Shanghai over time, mm. clearly the US, maybe Russia, because, you know, they, they tend to adopt a lot of Western, Western mm. sort of values and ideas and particularly fashion. So do you have an idea of the addressable market? I mean, are we at the beginning of this market or are we at the end of the market? I mean, where are we globally? We're certainly not at the end. Mm. I think we're, you know, Australia, it's a bit more mature. And I think that's just because it's everyone's outdoors in Australia. You know, it's people love being outdoors. It's a sports mad nation. Um, but I think other – it's linked to this health and wellness movement and that's only rising throughout the world. Um, I think in Australia, I'd say like we're sort of, you know, a, a more mature. Yeah, yeah. And which is why there's so many active wear brands out of Australia, which but I think like is UK great. And Europe, I think are at the start of yeah. it. So um, do, do we get it? Do, do, do they have as many brands in those places as we have in Australia or is that a phenomenon that's um, exclusive to Australia? In other words, do we as on a per capita basis mm. or whatever you call it, but we seem to be more aggressive in terms of the new brands arising, and which I presume that gives you an opportunity to take your brand overseas. That's yeah. what I'm getting to here. I think so. I think on a per capita basis, Australia, you know, it's like swimwear. Australia 
you know, had and has so many great swimwear brands. I think it's the same. And mm. I think worldwide people are looking to Australia for great active wear brands because it is something that people have been wearing in Australia for longer than, you know, other markets. And That's interesting. So we're sort of leading in a fashion sort of environment and a lifestyle environment because it's not just about fashion, it's about yeah. lifestyle as well, going into the sports. So it, it would seem to me then from what you're saying to me that the addressable market is probably right now is – hard to define, but it's growing and it's potentially very large if lifestyles mm. adopt yep. and change around the world similar to the way we have done that. And that's got something to do with temperature and, you know, you know the weather and all that sort of stuff, I guess, too. But you're saying the addressable market is quite large, like Mexico, for example, or uh, Argentina um, or South Africa. Their countries have similar sort of weather. Mm. South America has similar sort of weather to us. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that there's there's massive opportunity. And where have you... Now, as you said earlier, Cartier, where have you now pitched your product? Because you're the product mm -hmm. experience person yep. here. Where have you pitched your product relative to the whole market? So are you at the top end or the bottom end, the middle, um, uh, this type of female, that type of female? Where are you at? Um, we sit more in the middle. Um, so I think... In terms of price or... In or, terms of price. Right. Um, so I, our core consumer would sit between 25 and 35. Age um, or age, dollars. Age. Age. And then in terms of price point, we sit in the middle because we still want to create um, functional um, technical activewear and that comes at a price um, and at a certain quality. So, um, but we, however, want to be accessible to quite a lot of people. So, where that tear down from, I guess, where Lululemon would sit. Is, is Lululemon like, that? that's a really expensive one, is it? Yeah. Well, pretty expensive. It's pretty expensive. So what do you pay for a pair of? A mm, hundred and, so for a pair of our tights, I'll probably mostly range from 89 to 99. Lululemon will sit that next tier up around 120. Right. And then below you guys? Um, so you're looking at places like Cotton On, Body, Target, very mass market guys. Right. Um, and then like the likes of Nike and Addy also play at that lower price point. And then they've got that more premium price point. They play the spectrum depending on the range. Right. So because that Michelle Bridges in here not last week before and she was mm. telling us that she's got a, yep. a, a brand in Big W. Yes. Mm. Right. So yep. they're, they're down the lower end or the more the mass market. Yep. And can I ask you, is there any discernible difference between, and you're going to say yes, mm -hmm. obviously, between, mm -hmm. say, the, the BW product and, mm -hmm. say, your product? Yes. Yeah, and so in, in a technical sense, what is it? Tell me about um, it. It would be fabric quality. Right. What's that mean, though? So, like, you brought up compression fabrics yep. before. All of our fabric is a compression fabric and how the mills, how they knit that fabric and the yarns they use, Um, it's – more premium and you have to buy it at a certain price compared to, I guess, um, the quality that Big W or Target would use and the knit structure of the fabric would be quite different. Right. And, and where do the margins sit though? Do you, in your sweet spot, which is the mid-range, mm -hmm. 25 to 35-year-old buyer, yep. it, does the margin, is, this, is the sweet spot in, for margin at the top end or at the bottom end or in the middle? In other words, you make more margin either side of where you are? I mean, do you think Lululemon makes more money per item, I mean, in terms of margin, mm -hmm. profit, than you do? Well, they have a volume game and they're so purely, no. in a way, yes, because they're, they're playing a volume game. Yeah, but per item though. Oh, per item. So is it better to sell in the middle, the bottom or the top, just per item? Um. So is it a marginal extra cost? To Is the cost not, marginally extra to, to um, um, make your product? Even though the product's better, but make your product is it is it marginal difference in terms of cost relative to what say Big W uh, builds their so let's call let's call it lesser product than you. Mm. Um, or is there a huge jump in the cost? I think there's a pretty big jump from like a mass market to where we are in terms of the costing yeah, of the, the product. Yes. Yeah. So, so who determines all that stuff to, between you two guys? I mean, who sits down and sort of grinds through all the numbers and says, "Shit, you know, we can." Uh, we get, do you get, where do you manufacture, by the way? Uh, Taiwan. Taiwan. So um, we found a manufacturer in Taiwan. I can get one item done, which we're going to mm -hmm. sell for 99, 90 mm -hmm. bucks. I can get one item built for 50 bucks. Yeah. Um, whereas if we go down to the Big W, they're selling their items for 50, but they can um, 
um, made their own two bucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how does that work? It was never about how do we squeeze the biggest buck out of this. Right. Okay. That's because that's what I wanted to get to. And also, margin. We. I think we were really focused. I think initially on revenue initially because we used to manufacture in Australia, so our margins were actually pretty terrible. (laughs) Um, And we did that because we didn't want to sit on have all this inventory risk because once you go offshore, you have to commit to higher minimums Mm. and you have more stock that you need to sell through. So when you're a new business and you want to test what's working, we're also a bootstrap business. For us, um, why we weren't winning in the margin, we're still making margin, but it wasn't as great as what we're making right now. We just wanted to focus on less inventory risk, try and sell the products. And, and then, establish a presence and yes, build correct. up the brand. Yeah, and like, you know, move on to new collections so we're not just sitting on like old inventory we can't move. And so don't know whether that was the right strategy, but that's a strategy. Well, it's got you we where took, you are. Yeah. So so, so so, it wasn't a margin game. So, and no, I think that's important not. because yeah. people listening, it shouldn't always be, I always say it's yeah. not always about making money. It's about yeah. making money but not necessarily making the, the maximum. It's about making the optimum mm-hmm. based on where you want to sit. Mm. So you want to sit in particular, you want to make a quality product. Correct. Absolutely. But you're yeah. not trying to get to the, the elite level, no. sort of right, a, right up the upside type territory. Is they, are they well, expensive? Yes, they are expensive. I don't I don't think you need to sell activewear at that price point because we want to be accessible to, you know, more of the market. And we're seeing now um, even when people are coming into store, they're coming in not necessarily because they need to replace their tights because of wear and tear. They want to update with the latest print. So, um, you know, we want people to be constantly updating their wardrobes um, with Nimble. Mm. Yeah. So, so have you identified who your, I mean, you said 25, 35, mm-hmm. but who's your customer? T- tell me about your customer. I mean, there are. female. Yeah. yeah. You know, and unfortunately, as we get older, you know, we make sure we've got girls in the team that are still young, you know, I think. Relevant. Yeah, yeah. for us, it's really important that as we get older, we still keep appealing to the millennials. And, you know, that's, mm. we were not millennials a while ago now, but I think, you know, it is us and it's our team and it's our friends and it's the women around us. I think that that's really important for us because it helps us stay relevant. But I think it's just, you know, busy women who have an emphasis on health and well-being, who don't take themselves too seriously, but want to feel good. Um, and how do you how do you how do you identify the feeling good part? So, I mean, Cardi said a moment ago that a long time ago people used to change their um, active wear when they started to get those little like balls on there that they get from wearing too often. All in a tie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but now they, irrespective of that, now what they do is they upgrade when the new sort of style comes out or the new colours or patterns or whatever it is. Is that right? Correct. So yeah. it's sort of how do you identify, um, and that's your 25 to 35-year-old range still, still, still your territory? Yeah. You're not yeah. looking at people maybe a little bit higher up the curve. We have customers, but I guess, you know, if you look at our, our data, our core mm-hmm. customer, the majority of our customers are in that age bracket. Okay, yeah. so you and, – and I'm trying to get into the analytics. Um, so – had, I, I guess the way I mean I, I know you got a shop in Bondi. You, you, I, I presume you got a few flagships around the place. You know, like you know, shop in Bondi. Probably one in Melbourne. Have you? I don't yes, know. Yes, we've got one in Melbourne. One in Brisbane. So we, no, mm. we've only got the two stores. Okay, two stores. Yeah. Okay, so presumably everything's mostly sold online. Yes, correct. Yeah, okay, so your online sales are you harvesting much data out of that? Yes. Right. So it's amazing what it's amazing. Right. What data you can get? Right. Okay. So, because I, I, I want to know, outside of the flag, outside of the shops, your online shop, which is your bigger, bigger shop, um, how do you do analytics on the data? So, what are you doing? Do you employ a data scientist? What are you doing around this stuff? We have um, a digital marketer um, who happens to be a friend of ours that um, we I went to uni with and so we I work really closely with her. Um, we look at, you know, we use a great platform for our online business called Shopify um, and it's got a lot of analytics. So, you know, everyone, I think for us, it's 
we're more and more trying to make sure that we're all, you know, we look at the data. Yeah, and so that- you're not sitting there saying, oh, well, this is what's going to sell next year. You're actually doing the some putting some science around this. Yeah, correct, yeah. And uh, how often do you do the analytics of the data before you make – do you make, do that before you make decisions as to what to introduce next year? Correct. We will always review data. I'm sitting down with the product team and we're range planning. We'll look at um, the previous season and, like, the um, comparative season – um, we have weekly team meetings where each department speaks about figures and results and um, often we do top-level like summary recaps about you know data or any um, online trends or product trends and that kind of thing. And it's just a good way for natural conversations to evolve as well and um, make, yeah, to get ideas and make the team feel like you know, they're working on the bigger picture as well. well many years ago, uh, this is a long, long time ago, um, I used to work at a law firm and uh, we had a lot of rag trade clients. Mm. And traditionally what, um, and big names, um, you know, like the, the Brenda Group, you know, and all the Sheridan sheets and, uh, and merchandising. And so what they tended to do was, I remember, is they used to go to overseas and they would go to Italy and they'd find out what the latest trends were. They'd buy the stuff as samples. Mm. And um, they used to, bring it back because I did a few trips with them and they bring it back and they'd have to cut the samples before they brought them into through customs to make sure that they weren't going to sell them. And then they basically just go and copy that stuff. Mm-hmm. There was no no analytics whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was just based on um, them being good stylists and uh, having a good knack of this stuff and being able to sort of, they, you know, hopefully pick something they think is going to work because they've seen it work somewhere else, bring it back to Australia and repeat it. And often mm-hmm. that was a bit of a trial and error type mm-hmm. thing. Um in terms of your new fashion, your your next line of whatever it is you're going to produce, um, I presume you do look at what's going on overseas and other places, but then how do you test that as opposed to doing trial and error? How do you test that against your data? Do you test it against your data, the data you have? Um, or do you work the other way? Does the data tell you what you need to pr- provide what's working? We do a bit of both. I think if we see something that's happening in the market or overseas and it's, you know, a new category line that we're not currently doing, I think how we'll test it is we'll do a smaller production run. We won't offer many SKUs in it, so many options in it. Um, And then we will, you know, start small and then we can grow from that. Um, And then where something our data is showing that – you know, there's a trend or um, it's contributing to quite a big portion of our sales, then that's where we will either do like new versions of it, expand that out um, and I guess widen the range in that area. So at what point do you ever just use it to say, I'm going to lead this, um, I'm going to lead the pack. I'm not going to look at what's happening Mm. in wherever it is, LA or something, wherever the places everybody comes up with new ideas. Um, Do you ever, guys ever sit down and say, you know what? Um, why don't we have a crack at this because this is what the star is telling mm-hmm. us and uh, we, we don't care what they're doing in LA. We'll, yeah. we'll look at what they're doing, but we're going to have a crack at doing something brand new. we always do a mixture of both, to be honest, because we're always looking at what's happening in the market. But then when we're sitting down and range reviewing, if, um, you know, when we're choosing new seasonal colours, if we believe that something is, you know, going to like trend that way, um, then we will, you know, pursue that as well. So I think it is how we work in our product team, a mixture of both. And do you two ever have arguments? Um, rarely. Very I think rarely. maybe like three times a year. Yeah. yeah. I think back on the product thing, it's a testament to Katia's, you know, she's very much like she believes in a vision and she sees it and, you know, like she's got a really good knack for that kind of stuff. I remember there was one colour, I can't remember what it was, that I was like, nah. No good. And she was like, I believe it's going to go well. And it was, you know, everything, you know, like it's always a good seller. And I think that that's a really important quality, you know, like that, yes, you look at what's going around, but you believe in your convictions. I, I saw something in the briefing material here because uh, uh, Compressite. Oh, Compressite. Okay. <laughs> yes. okay. So, yeah. I mean, well, you got something unique about your product. I mean, Hugh, my producer, was telling me yeah. that um, – you get recycled plastic or something yeah. like that? Okay, tell me about that. Because, I mean, is this – and it, I don't know about it, not that I should know yeah. about it, but, like, can you tell me, is that something you uh, propose and you promote? Yes, and, well, it's only That's something we – um, We only started working on and developing last year. So we actually – we manufacture in Taiwan and we work directly with mills there as well and we've got 
um, a team on the ground in Taiwan that um, work with us on fabric side and production side. So they've worked with some great big brands in the industry and they're very, very knowledgeable. And we went to them wanting because fashion is one of um, a really big contributor to unnecessary waste. So much packaging that goes into it and around it, like even plastic with online orders. So we're like, how can we reuse some of this plastic and put it back into our core fabric, which is compressed light. So compressed um, light. Yeah, compressed light. light. So it's okay. a play on like a compression fabric that's really light. Lightweight. Lightweight. But um, so... Taiwan is, I think, well, I believe is one of the countries that are at the forefront of recycling. Like when we were in Taipei last year, I was walking around and I think I grabbed an apple from breakfast and we're walking around the streets. And I'm like, I need to throw this apple away, but there's like no garbage bins on the street. That's because they eat the apple cores. Well, <laughs> no, it's no. because I asked the guys later, they're like, everyone takes ownership of their rubbish because it's sorted. Cool. Like, so, you know, if you have an apple scrap, that goes into the compost pile. So they have no general waste. Um, and because they recycle, like, I think it's them and Japan, we're like, well, why can't we use all the recycled bottles and turn that into a fabric? So um, with the mill, they developed our compressed light fabric and basically we use post-consumer use recycled bottles, which are cleaned and sorted. It's melted down into a um, version of a polyester yarn, but from the recycled bottles and then it's knitted up with our elastane. Um, and that is our compressed light fabric. And this year we're on track to save like a quarter of a million bottles from landfill. Right. And, 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 and is that something that your customer base buys into? I mean, do you promote that? Yes. Through your website? Yeah. yeah. yeah and I think we need to probably we need to do, do a, a better, better job. job at it. Because that's pretty yeah. unique. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and, and your and your by the way, your 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 target market, the twenty five to thirty five, mm-hmm. very conscious of that stuff. Completely, and, and especially people yeah. below twenty five who yeah. will come into twenty five, for sure, mm-hmm. extraordinarily conscious of this sort of stuff, mm-hmm. giving back, sharing, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. That that that's a big economy. Yeah, because um, I wanted to touch on that, and uh, and can I ask you one more thing? I mean, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm running out of time, but I'm enjoying this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you bootstrapped the business. Mm-hmm. Um. How did you fund this business? I mean, did you have a, a billionaire father or you have a billionaire father? I mean, how did it all work? Because everyone always tough. assumes this stuff. It's, it's, it's a lot of so tough. Pushing shit uphill in the beginning. Yeah, to yeah, be yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, we invested it, everything in our bank so accounts. Both Fear and I had mortgages before going into this. So I think we we took everything out. out. We what? both worked. Yeah. So, yeah, we when we started the business, both Fear and I – had jobs because we needed to be able to pay ourselves that wasn't through the business because you need to make sure all your funds are going back into the business. I think we used personal savings. Um, well, we did mm. in the beginning. And then, you know, cash flow is really tricky, especially mm. in the early days. Like we struggled like for the first two years a lot with mm. cash flow. So we did have to turn to family for some loans. Um, but I, we've bootstrapped between our funds and some family loans. And then, and have you paid your family back? Um, we've started. started we to, haven't. Not in full. Not yet. <laughs> but I think that that's the thing. It, it's it's that's all, normal though. Yeah. yeah, and it's all well and good. You know, yeah. we put everything we had, but it keeps, you know, it takes a long time, I think, before you can build a sustainable business that can fund its own growth. How and long have you been doing this? Since 2014 so we launched. Yeah. And, you know, we've only, we've been profitable sort of for over, just over a year. Um, but that's a, you know, that's Is sort that of. after you take something for yourselves or that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, we've got a great team, team. and, yeah. you know, but it takes, you know, it took us two and a half years of, as Cardia said, you know, pushing shit uphill. And I yeah, think that's totally. the thing, like it's, it's, you run out of money very quickly mm. and it's made us be very efficient with how we allocate it, but it's important to not, not. Like you have to leave yourself something to keep on going. I so think that you we can underestimated our burn rate at the start. And initially when we we had enough to get the business off the ground, I think personally, but we underestimated, okay, well, when you're trading for a year and you're bringing in new collections, where's that cash going to come 
from. And that was what we found really tricky and what we had to turn to family. Where do you want to take it from here? So, I mean, you want to sell the business? You're looking for partners? What's your deal? I think for us now, we want to build a really sustainable business. I think we love what we do. Like I get to sit next to my best mate every day at work. Um, it's a, you know, we're really lucky where we are. And um, I think we want to do big things with this business. I think it's such an exciting, it's, it's a really, I think we're, if we can time it well and there's a bit of luck and hard work, we can really ride this wave. And, you know, bring on partners. Yep. We're definitely open to that. Maybe it's not right now. It could be in a few years Mm. um, if we want to accelerate our growth. Um, But, you know, for now, I think Vera and I definitely want to build something long term and we're not looking to exit anytime soon. Because you love the business. Yeah, Yeah, we love it. And there's so much more that we need to do and achieve in it. We need to get scale too. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, whatever that means, but you need to get scale from here. Yeah. I mean, we've run out of time, and unfortunately, um, I'm getting wound up by my producer. But um, <laughs> I, I really, I, I know I could speak to you guys for at least another hour about this stuff. But I always offer everybody the opportunity to ask me a question because I've been doing all the questioning. So, mm-hmm. you guys have got a question mm. for me? Yeah. Can we both ask one? Yeah, it's two questions, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to go first? Or? Sure, you go okay. first. So. I guess if you could go back to, you know, I suppose you at a similar stage to us, you know, you're kind of, you've got some traction, you've started out in business, but you're not, you know, you're nowhere, you've got such a long journey ahead, you know, I guess what advice would you go back and sort of give yourself? Um, probably uh, if, I, if I go back to the wizard days, the early wizard days, um, and when I was at your current stage, um, I was on my own. I didn't have a partner. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I see you two guys as one. Mm. I don't see you guys as a partnership. So, and I think that the best thing I did was take on a big relevant partner, um, into my business. I know a lot of people said to me, well, you're giving away 50% of your business and you know, you should sort of ride the wave and own a hundred percent of it. The problem with riding the wave and owning 100% of it is it takes a lot longer and um, you either become irrelevant or alternatively you're sharing the so-called wave with a thousand others. Mm-hmm. Um, so time becomes of the essence. Mm. And what you need to do is, I think worked for me is what I needed to do at the similar stage to you is actually bring on a partner and actually get there quicker mm. with that partner's capital. And that was Kerry Packer. But not only the capital got me there quicker, because that just allowed me to accelerate everything and to build a lot more people and et cetera. But it wasn't only the, the capital, but it was also their intellectual capital that they brought to the game, mm-hmm. that their ability to market and build a brand, the wizard brand. So at your same stage, Vera, to answer your question, um, the thing that I had to wrestle with was, do I bring in a partner now? And I was lucky because there was a partner ready to come in. They, they approached me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I bring in a partner now and fast track it? and dilute my position mm. or do I hang in there and um, own a bigger percentage of a bigger business but take the risk of somebody else coming and diluting my position mm. or the whole market falling apart, and which, which by the way, mm. eight years later, the whole market fell apart with the GFC mm. and you never know what's going to yeah. change a market. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. There's always external things which you don't control. Nobody foresees, not only you, nobody can foresee – so I'm a non-risk type person and I always go into business with partners and usually they're capital based and that they have other capital like intellectual capital, et cetera. So mm. to answer your question, that's what I did. Okay. okay. Good advice. Um, Hard here. So you've mentored and sat, you know, with a lot of successful businesses. Do you see any common thread between these successful businesses? Uh, yeah, I just certainly do. Um, so, um, for the first one is, um, and it doesn't matter whether it's a new market or a, an existing market. Um, it's in an existing market, like in your market, for example. And, and what I see as a common thread is that people like yourselves go into that market and they differentiate themselves. Um, so, and they pick a part or a segment of the market and they concentrate on that segment. For example, when I introduced the wizard business, um, there was already Aussie and Rams and there's a few other people around. So one might say that market was already fairly busy. Mm. Um, and at that stage, they already had 10% of the market. Um, 
but I differentiated my business from their businesses and I did a different product line. I actually distributed differently. So um, I see that uh, that is, that's a common theme. In other words, you're not the pioneer because mm-hmm. pioneers a lot of times don't do so well. Yeah. Um, but you once the pioneers go in, yeah. then you can come in and do something slightly different. I, I see that. But I, I think the other thing I see is from you two guys, girls, is um, that the common denominator between all the successful businesses that I see is apart from working out the product and or the service and, and making it slightly different and and driving it, the common theme I see all the time is this preparedness um, for entrepreneurs the proprietor entrepreneurs and also the staff who are proprietorial too and, you know, they have that sort of entrepreneurial feel. I see people who have got good skills that complement each other, like you two guys, but also you sort, you display this um, propensity to work long hours, hard, and you're actually in love with your business or with the product and the thing you're su- supplying. It's funny, you know, I was only thinking to myself this morning, I, I got asked to go on a on a show on Monday night called Your Money's New Sh- New Show, which is on the Sky Channel, and uh, and I I get a twenty minute segment there every Monday now, and um, the for some reason they decide they want to ask me about the Royal Commission into banking, and of course it's a Royal Commission to banking, but somehow they wanted to drag my business, which is effectively a, a brand broking business, into it, and start asking questions, you know, and I thought about it only this morning because I've had a few other things happen. I've been and had a few drinks because I've been celebrating the rugby league grand final, etc. And I was thinking about it this morning and I thought, you know, really, I actually do love my Yellow Brick Road business. I do, I actually like helping people find who is the best person to borrow money from mm. because I actually love doing that. And I love my business, the fact that my business does do that. And I think if you love your business, what you you said to me, and that's a common denominator of people that I, not only myself, but other people I've interviewed who have been successful, they actually love what they do. Now, this is not, you know, people say passion, et cetera. It's a sort of a, a necessary ingredient, passion, but it's it's not sufficient. And that, that sufficient ingredient is not to be passionate, in other words, be energetic and know, have a lot of knowledge about the thing that's going on and, you know, sort of be evangelistic about it. I don't mean that's, that's passion to me, but loving your business means you actually love the reason you're doing what you do. You're making people feel better, enjoy their lifestyle. In your case, I mean, you can better describe it than me. In my case, I'm just helping people find who's the best lender so they can actually buy their dream house. That's my, that's what I love doing. And that's my purpose. Everybody I know who's successful identifies with that purpose. And then they are prepared. That allows them then to be prepared to work hard, deal with all the cash flow issues, have all the arguments, the stressful nights, the sleepless nights, and also the, the successes. I mean, I just last night I was at a football presentation and, you know, everyone goes, oh, you know, because I'm on the Border City Roosters. Everybody, and the Roosters is a very, very successful club over time. You know, 110 years we've been very, over that period we've been very successful. But only 14 times have we won a grand final in 110 years. So that sort of says to you, you know, for 90-odd years – we haven't been so successful, but what we've been successful at is actually going through the failures and doing it together. We pretty much have a core group of people who've done it together. Successful businesses, the common denominators, they ride the highs and they ride the lows together. And the reason, the thing that allows them to do it is they love what they do. They truly do love what they do. And then finally, they have good compatibility to with the people in their organization. And you two, like, you're like uh I don't know, to me, like one. It was just every time you, I mean, our audience is listening to this, but every, what I should tell the audience, every time one of you answers a question, you look at the other one for permission to answer it or for uh, acknowledgement that you're answering it properly. Look at you, the two of you are doing it now, right I know, now. It's they just turn to each other. Every time. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I didn't want to say it, but there you go. I don't know who's Tweedledum or who's Tweedledee, but it doesn't matter. So, but that's my point. And I do see the ingredients of success here. Now, you've got external things that you don't control. Mm. That'll be one of the determinants of how well you go and how well you steer your way around those determinants, those external determinants. Um, and that's going to be a challenge. You know, what happens with 
active wear and how does it evolve and how do you stay relevant in that evolution? But you're two smart women. Um, you know your product. You know your market. You, you're aided these days by you know, analytics and data and stuff like that, which is a, it's a great digital tool to have that we never had 20, 30 years ago. It's fantastic as long as you know how to use that and manage it. Um, I see you guys as having all the ingredients of being very, very successful at what you do. And the great thing is you've never brought a partner in. So you can, you have you got, you sort of got uh, um, family partners. But at some stage, if your business continues on and the market is addressable and you have the product that can address that market, I can see a, a partner coming in. And when that time comes, um, make sure you select a partner that gives you intellectual property as well as uh, intellectual capital as well as financial capital. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think you guys are going to do well. And I don't even know your product. I mean, I wouldn't know active wear from a good one from a bad one. Other one, unless I see some girl walking around and I can say, that looks pretty good. Uh, might be things other than the active wear, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. You're probably right. So I'm, I might, yeah, correct, exactly. So uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm really being... Um, uh, enjoyed today. Thanks very much. Um, and it's great to see um, a couple of Sydney girls, once Melbourne girls, doing really well. And I can see you guys hanging in there on a global stage. Good luck. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark. Thanks, Thanks for having, having us. us. You're welcome. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.